Greetings from the humongous. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. This is the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Joe, no friends for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. There's a fine line between stupid and clever. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago All right. We are back, Steve. And uh, still driving through the films of the 80s, but I believe we're coming to our destination here. Am I right? Yes, I think so. Let's, uh, it's time to, time to land this plane here. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, I tell you, it's been, it's been great. I've, I've, I think I enjoyed this series of episodes more than I've enjoyed any series of episodes since we started our podcast back, like, Many many years ago now, Steve. It's yeah, like yeah, fifteen years ago, we were pioneers in this field. Um, <laughs> Still unsung. Well, <laughs> uh, but um, but this is it, Steve. Now we get to name off and even count down some of our favorite films of the decade. And uh, you know, I don't know about you, but to me, this was very very challenging. To be honest with you, because. The 80s are full of great films, but not only are they full of great films, it is the decade in which I kind of matured as a person into being a film lover before, like, going to college and, you know, going the, like, the scholarly route on it. I had to actually learn to love film entirely on my own, without any assistance and without the Internet. Uh, and the 80s was a great time for that. Uh, so it was tough. It was tough to pick movies. How about you? Yeah, it was. I mean, the big question, which you and I know have wrestled with uh, off pod, is, like, are we picking the movies that we think are, like, the best artistic expressions of the 80s, or are we just picking the movies that bring us the most comfort? You know, how do we define favorite? And uh, I don't know about you, Andre. I kind of went a little bit of a mix, but I think mostly with, for me personally, I mostly chose the movies that are my favorite. I mean, like, they're a combination. It's not just pure nostalgia. I mean, every movie on my list, I think, has a lot of, uh, you know, artistic credentials behind it. I stand up for all of these. None of them are what I would call a guilty pleasure or anything. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, at least my decision-making is like, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm not going to claim uh, L'Argent, which I still haven't seen. You know? <laughs> so, um, right. uh, yeah. So I, I, I went... In, so when you hear my list of movies, there's going to be a lot of movies that you'll probably be like, oh, yeah, of course. But... You'll at least get my personal insight into, like, what do I think were the 10 best and uh, even in order? But what about you, Andre? How did you pick your list here? Well, again, it was difficult, and I ended up uh, with a lot of, like, 
doubles. In other words, I, I would I would pick a movie that I really liked and then I would double it up with a, either a similar movie or maybe another film by the same director. So like Terminator would be doubled up with Aliens for me or maybe Ter Terminator sometimes I would double it up with. I doubled it up with Predator. Uh, oh, so, so you did the classic list to cheat where your top 10 list is like 15 films long? My list was probably 20 or 25 films long, and that was just beginning. So it was a little bit difficult. Oh, and I and, and the doubling thing, I mean, initially, you know, I, I oh, had to I whittle see. it down yeah. to 10. But obviously I started with a wider field. But, uh, the, the, but, but again, I found that some films kind of – uh, canceled one another out, you know, like, uh, like for me, uh, Star Trek two and Empire Strikes Back canceled one another out. Uh, and another concern for me, not a big concern, but a little bit of a concern is that I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to be listing stuff that everybody lists, you know, so I skipped some very, very prominent films that I love. And I do believe they're the best films of the eighties or amongst them. Um, and just uh, sometimes went to to more quirkier picks that I think are less seen. So it'd be cool, like if anybody walked away from this particular episode with anything, like if they walked away with one movie that they want to check out, that'd be great. I will say, and um, a tribute to the strength of the decade. Like when I was making my list, I was trying to be kind of ruthless in my top 10 being like, all right, mm -hmm. got to be 10 movies. There's not going to be ties. This is it. And it occurred to me, there are a bunch of directors who I love who maybe made what I think is their single best movie in the eighties mm -hmm. and still did not make my personal top 10. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and I don't mean that, you know, necessarily is like, oh, these other things are so much better. I mean, just that, it, like, to me, that's an an example of everybody wins. Like, <laughs> they're my 10 favorites, and then there's all these other great movies. What may be my favorite films by David Cronenberg, uh, Carpenter, Zemeckis, De Palma, Cameron, maybe even Woody Allen, maybe mm -hmm. all of those people... My favorite single movie by them was made in the 1980s, and none of them made my top 10. Yeah, they would have made, you know, my top 20. Or, they're, they're great movies. Right. But. Absolutely. I totally understand. And that's the difficulty. And again, the 80s was an excellent decade for film. It was a decade that actually changed the way Hollywood operated. In some cases, not for the better. Uh, but in terms of the movies that actually came out in the decade, I thought they were great. And it was a populist decade. There's no question that box office had meaning, <laughs> but it always had meaning in Hollywood and in cinema, period, you know. So um, beyond that, I think there's just a lot of really great pictures of all genres and all varieties that uh, that were really, really outstanding. It was, uh, it was a tough pick, but we did it, right? We did yeah. it. We're, we're ready to go with our list. Well, want, so, real quick before we start, I also just want to mention in doing, you know, my research, trying to get, like, is there anything I'm forgetting, which, you know, it, so I was looking at the best picture winners of the 1980s. And, oh. man, the 1980s are a prime example of, uh, you know, we're coming up on Oscar season here. Uh, about get, get the nominees soon. That I love the Oscars, but then I often disagree with what is the best picture. 
And the 1980s are a great example of that because I went through and looked at like what won every year, 1980 through 1989. And out of those 10 movies, there's only one movie on that list that I even considered for my top 10. Like the other nine movies, I'm like, well, that clearly is not making it. So uh, just a really quick rundown. 1980 best picture was, of course, Ordinary People. Mm -hmm. Not on my list, Steve. Is it on your list? No. Uh, after that was Chariots of Fire. Uh, then we had just really, we had Gandhi. Chariots of Fire is a good picture. Hmm. Gandhi, Terms Gandhi. of Endearment, Amadeus. Uh-huh. Good picture. Excellent uh, picture. Out of Africa. Not on my list. Platoon, which we've discussed on previous episodes. Uh, the Last Ooh. Emperor. Not Rain, on my list. Rain Man. And uh, not on my list, capping it off with what I'm sure is, I mean, I'm going to say top three for you. Driving Miss Daisy, Andre. Not on my list. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Hey, man, my list is it will surprise you. But yeah, uh, it's sometimes. But Driving Miss Daisy is not going to appear on that list. But man, I got to say, just looking at all those winners, when we think about all the great movies of the 80s and all our favorites, like. That's a shitty list. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the Oscars. What what are you going to (laughs) do? What are you going to do? But keep that list handy because, again, I never remember this stuff. And even though, you know, both you and I at least used to watch the Oscars, I had no idea what was going to happen this year because all bets are off. But the Oscars were always like an eye-rolling kind of a thing, right? I mean – it's we were always amazed by the kind of movies that win best picture it's obviously there's a lot of politics involved uh, and a lot of campaigning is in politics and uh uh it it very rarely relates to the reality of what quality is and quality a lot of times is best seen in retrospect which is exactly part of what we're doing here it's true uh, anyway so we got a list right we do so we're going to do this right. count, countdown style. We'll go back and forth about uh, – we'll start counting down from 10 to 1. And, uh, Andre, I'll let you go first. But then our only other rule is that if you mention a movie that's also on my list, you know, we we won't discuss it twice. We'll just discuss it once. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll save you guys the time. Uh, just another – you know, another service you guys get from uh, Film Driven Podcast. <laughs> We're uh, very anyway, <laughs> yes, uh, we care. We care about your time. But uh, my number 10, drum roll, please. And my number 10 is from 1987, a little movie called House of Games. And it is, in fact, a little movie. It's an independent film. Uh, it is the first directorial effort from... David Mamet, of course, one of America's premier dramatists. I've heard of him, yes. Playwrights, you've heard of him. Uh, and I tell you, in the 1980s was a great decade for uh, Mamet. Not only was he unbelievably successful as a playwright, by that point was a kind of a legend, but he also had a very, very successful uh, film writing career that he worked out in the 80s and uh, as a matter of fact some of his films will appear on my list films that he was a screenwriter on but I'm going to start with the House of Games it is that to me is a sentimental favorite it's a little movie it's a movie that stars Joe Montana 
very Chicago, like Mamet himself. And yeah. uh, in, my inclusion of Mamet is very much with Chicago in mind. There's going to be another person who's kind of Chicago and who we who will appear in a couple of my films. But uh, but overall, Mamet's uh, House of Games is a movie. Uh, that stars Joe Montagna, as I mentioned, Lindsay Krause, who I think Mamet was married to at the time, wonderful actress. And um, it's essentially a movie about con artists. The less I say about the plot of House of Games, the better. But it is a movie with crackling dialogue, excellent performances across the board. Uh, it is clever. It will mind fuck you. You'll be surprised. And it just works amazingly well. For a first-time director, Mamet knocked it out of the park. And I'm, I'm, I might go as far as to say I don't think he's never knocked it out of the park on the same level as he has in House of Games. I think as a director, he's been a little bit hit or miss. But House of Games is definitely a hit. And uh, it wasn't really a hit commercially, obviously. But if you've never seen it, check it out. It's an excellent film, and uh, it stands the test of time. House of Games, my number 10. An excellent choice. Uh, I have not seen it in many years, but I, I do recall liking it quite a bit. And... Yeah, great, great first entry. So uh, my number 10, a movie we discussed not that long ago on uh, comedies, is uh, Broadcast News, uh, the James O. Brooks movie. So, uh, you know, anybody who somehow is listening to this, hasn't listened to our comedy episode, check that out. I can tell you more about that. But I will say Broadcast News is also a bit of a sentimental thing from my regard because um, – it was one. It's one of the most quoted movies uh, among people our age in our industry. Um, I can't tell you how many times everyone's used that little tip about sitting on your sports coat when <laughs> setting up a shot, and then uh, subsequently it became one of those things that as the years went on, and uh, I've been doing this longer, and I got older, you start to realize that no one under thirty seen broadcast news. So uh, when you're trying to <laughs> yeah. tell when you're trying to tell a 28 year old person, you know, like in broadcast news, and they just look at you blankly, <laughs> so you're like, we got to get a new. Uh, they just they just think you're talking about the like the actual news on yeah. the the channels that nobody watches anymore. Yeah, but uh, broadcast news is a movie I've uh, loved and thought about for decades. Uh, a great romantic triangle and. Uh, can't recommend it enough. Also, like James L. Brooks, one of those filmmakers who uh, sticks the wrong word for it, but I feel like broadcast news is the best example of what he does. And uh, sometimes it can get a little too schmaltzy, but uh, broadcast news has uh, the right level of schmaltz. So that's my number 10. What do you got, uh, number nine, Andre? Well, uh, first of all, uh, very, very cool choice. You know, that uh, just like my sort of Chicago-based selection of House of Games uh, broadcast news wonderfully dovetails into your career and uh, my career or, you know, whatever's left of it at this point. And uh, it's thematic. I like that. I like I like thematic stuff. We want this list to be a an, an standalone work of art, obviously, as we do with all our <laughs> with all our podcasts, you know, it's it's art. So uh, kudos to your first selection. Uh, my number nine is from 1980 and it's Raging Bull. And uh, here's a film that obviously uh, will pop out in mo on most people's list for 
the best films of the 1980s. It is a great film. It's a film we didn't really talk about too much, even when we were talking about Scorsese. And, you know, I spent a couple of episodes really talking a lot about Scorsese's film After Hours, which is a comedy he did after King of Comedy. And I, I love that film. And that was my pair-up. It was After Hours and Raging Bull, and obviously I had to go with Raging Bull simply because it's a greater film. It's brutal, it's funny, it's beautifully photographed, uh, the script is fantastic, and yet it feels very loose and kind of semi-improvised. It has that vibe to it, and it just it just holds up so well. It's an amazing experience. The way the boxing matches are filmed is super innovative and, and original, and, uh, uh, you know, the drama within it is so kind of relatable, and the main character, Jake LaMotta, played by De Niro, uh, of course, and uh, his relationships with his wife and his brother, uh, played by Joe Pesci, particularly the Joe Pesci relationship. It's so, like, relatable, and it's so human, and, and even though Jake LaMotta is a brutish guy who kind of relates to the world in a violent manner, uh, he's very kind of lovable in his own way. And, and the way Scorsese was able to have a character who's that kind of really terrible human being uh, and still make him make him relatable and lovable is uh, is a unique achievement but but the movie just is just a lot there's a lot of stuff going on in Raging Bull and uh, all of it all of it succeeds I mean it's a home run on, on every level to me what uh, are you a fan yeah I am a fan I'm so glad you actually brought that up because that was one of the movies that I hadn't you know, it's one of those things I'd seen it like three times, but then have not seen it in well over a decade. So it was on my kind of initial list of 20 or 30 movies. And I'm like, that was the one I'm like, maybe I should revisit that. So I threw it in the other day and uh, it's now number seven on my list. Um, I will say apart from the things you remember about the innovative boxing scenes and the brutality and, uh, you know, all the the violence in the home, but it's entertaining as hell. I mean, I, I put it on, and within 10 minutes, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I mean, I started right. watching it kind of late at night and wound up just staying up way later than I should have because I couldn't turn it off. I mean, it's it's yeah, great. It's, it's, it, is, uh, it is. I was watching it, since I'd seen it before, with a commentary track with uh, Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker, mm -hmm. uh, which is great and has all sorts of interesting uh, tidbits about the movie and how they would plot out, you know. Uh, one little thing that, you know, you probably notice, it's almost subliminal, but you got to really be paying attention to it. A great thing they did was there's a lot of uh, very subtle slow motion in this movie. And I don't mean the boxing scenes, but there are scenes where Jake LaMotta is watching somebody and everything else is at regular speed, but then the POV shot from Jake is just slowed down a little bit. Right. And, and they keep the regular speed audio, but so it's just like there's just something off about his perception. And right, right, right. Like, it's just a great, innovative trick. And uh, a little and funny aside. I, everybody uses it now. Yeah. But um, a little funny aside I learned is in, uh, you know, the famous you fucking my wife scene. Uh-huh. Uh, 
apparently when they were doing that, Joe Pesci wasn't giving quite like the reaction they wanted. You know, like he was good, but they wanted a little better. So, you know, they were doing shot reverse shots. So you got a shot of Joe Pesci where you don't see De Niro. So they roll cameras and De Niro changed it to, are you fucking your mother? <laughs> and, and apparently, and I rem- I remember that reaction shot. You know, like that, how many movies can you say that that reaction? Like that was perfect. I did not know that. That's but that was De Niro improvised that to get the more surprised reaction. From yeah, that. that's good. That's that's called a generous actor. Well, that's and, what uh, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker had a great. You know, I. I promise I won't just tell Raging Bull stories for the next 30 minutes. But uh, she said, you know, she had worked on something small with Marty a decade before, but this was her first film with Marty, her first feature film in general. And she just talked about how amazing it was that your first movie, you just have all this raw footage of like peak De Niro. And she could really tell from the footage what a generous actor he was because in scene after scene, she had all these takes where you could watch the takes in order and watch how he would subtly adjust his performance to help the other actors in the scene. Yeah, to help uh, the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, well, Raging well, Bull is a fine addition. That's number seven on my list. It's fantastic. It is fantastic. And, you know, that movie, just to give a little more credit to De Niro, because I got to say, De Niro has. I think slid in public estimation in the last, well, is it 20 years of his career? Definitely the last 15 years of his career for a variety of reasons. Just the fact that he doesn't seem to give a shit about any of his performances or the fact that he except the Irishman, except (laughs) the Irishman. Yeah. With what there are exceptions, but, but you know, but those exceptions kind of prove the rule with him. I think it's important to really point out, Raging Bull in terms of what De Niro did on that film, because not only is his performance unbelievable and, uh, you know, he did this thing that a lot of actors do now, which is like he gained a lot of weight uh, to play the older Jake and, uh, like, people don't think too much about that, but at that time, nobody was doing that shit, you know? I mean, it was a unique, unique thing. So special kudos has to be given to De Niro. And also, De Niro brought the project to Scorsese. I mean, the story goes that uh, Scorsese had, like, a really bad just crashed out on coke uh, at the end of the decade and was in the hospital and um, De Niro brought him the story of Jake LaMotta and he's like you gotta do it and you're gonna train for it like a boxer would and uh, Scorsese did not want to do it because he wasn't like the biggest fan of sports movies and yeah and didn't like boxing well, yeah, wasn't a big fan of boxing and also was like, hey, you know, Rocky is a friggin' sensation now. Anything we put out about boxing is going to be just like, look like a Rocky knockoff. He wanted nothing to do with it, but De Niro talked him into it. And and Scorsese later on said that that, that film saved his life. It literally saved his life. And uh, to this day, it, it remains certainly among his greatest films. Not necessarily his most beloved, but his Amongst his greatest, and uh, well, what can you say? We could say a lot more about Raging Bull, but uh, I guess we should move on. Yes, so uh, Raging Bull, a great, great choice. Um, my number nine, a movie we've also discussed way back on our action one, but uh, I had to put Die Hard in there. Die Hard is my vote for <laughs> the best action movie of all time, and it just works on so many levels, uh, right in the middle of John McTiernan's 
awesome three run pick of uh, Predator, Die Hard, and Hunt for Red October, all of which are great. But uh, Die Hard has so many, a lot of things from the 80s also operating at just like their best level. I mean, like it's great Bruce Willis. <laughs> You've got a great William Atherton role, who's uh, one of those classic, <laughs> uh, what do you call that guys in the 80s? You know, always just seems slimy. Yeah. And yeah, of he's course, a character actor. He's great. I mean, yes. Alan Rickman, has, that's on my short list for the best movie villains of all time. Absolutely. So uh, Die Hard is extremely well executed. Also for, I mean, apart from my own love of the movie, you know, as the significance of Die Hard is really hard to overstate. Just how much, what a huge imprint that cast over all action movies for like a solid decade going forward. But anyway, Die Hard. I know we've discussed it before. Not a lot of new info on that, but that's that's my right, 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 right. Well, again, you know, Die Hard definitely falls into the category of films that everybody's seen, and and of course, the recent controversy about Die Hard was: Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Where do you stand on that? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Uh, it's acceptable, sure. It'll. I mean, I will watch it during Christmas. The same. Uh, that is same how it as, counts. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely fine. I will also watch it around the time of the Fourth of July as well. Uh, and I feel the same way about uh, the James Bond quote unquote Christmas movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yes, uh, I, same, I'm actually. I'm a giant fan of uh, watching movies around a theme. Like, you know, like, hey, it's President's Day. Let's watch a President's movie. So I'm a big fan of that. And then also 100% not a purist as to what qualifies. Absolutely. Like, uh, if you have a movie with a prominent scene that takes place around Christmas time, it, it counts. What do you think? I mean, this this is uh, this is maybe a little esoteric, but like, like, why do you think... Die Hard works so well. Is there something about it? Is it is it just like uh, is it the scenario, the kind of the every man against surviving and persevering against the odds? Is it that basic theme in it, or is it just that like this this one man has a chance to defeat the bad guys? Or what, what well, is it? it's yeah, so hard to pinpoint. I, in some ways, I don't. It's not one thing. It's a couple things, but they just it's. It's impressive because all of the things work. Like, on one hand, you can buy – it's got the defending your family element, which right. is uh, very successful. Uh, it has the, – the plot of the bad guys is um, both clever and at least somewhat plausible, you know? <laughs> yes, like, yes. I, mean, I, I agree. It is – like you can at least buy and it's it's kind of a fun mystery in the middle of the movie like what do the bad guys want like the kind of fainting of uh you know tricking the authorities to shutting down the power was pretty clever so that makes sense and then also i mean the basic premise which is um you know and somewhat a change of pace for the movies of the time was the idea of the hero who is trapped with not a lot and then he has to figure it out yeah, yeah. The improvisational aspect, you know, like when, when once Bruce Willis like is running around without shoes and in a tank top, you know, I don't know why. Why did he take his shoes off? I'm not sure about that. It's uh, the tank it's top. From, well, the t the shoes off is somebody gave him a tip. That oh, that's right. That's right. Against jet lag. Yeah, that's right. The guy who started talking to him at the end of his four hour flight. 
Yep. Uh, just as they were landing is when he decided to impart his uh, his wisdom to John McClane and then got scared by his gun, uh, yeah. which are- – <laughs> Which is funny, but anyway, but uh, but yeah, it's 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 a weird thing. Like again, you said it. Like everything kind of works in that movie. It didn't have to, and then after Die Hard, every movie become is sort of like Die Hard in many well, in many and, ways. Yeah, and it not all action movies work this way. Like you know, there's certainly a large audience for people enjoying action movies where the action star is larger than life, but. It is nice to have a change of pace every year. So even though Bruce Willis was still doing action movie things and seeming, you know, like that's not a realistic portrayal probably of a cop in that situation. But as an audience member, you could at least kind of be like, wow, what would I do in that situation? You know, whereas like it's kind of harder to imagine yourself in like the situations John Rambo got into. Right, but, right, uh, exactly. Or some of Schwarzenegger, like some of the stuff Schwarzenegger does, and he was sort of the leading action star of the day. You kind of get into the superhero kind of vibe, you know what I mean? Like it's not, like I'm interested to see what Schwarzenegger or James Bond or Captain America would do to get out of the thing, but it would definitely not be anything I would do, right? And with John McClane, you had like, hey, that's that's kind of what I would probably do if I was clever and brave enough to do it yeah uh, but but and the other thing about bruce willis is Die Hard was in many ways his kind of movie star debut right i mean he didn't really have anything prior to Die Hard outside of the, the very popular television show he was on moonlighting and i remember like when i saw that okay bruce willis is going to be in the movie and i'm I was thinking to myself, like, I like Moonlighting enough, and this could be pretty good. And then the movie blew me away, and, of course, it made him into a giant movie star. And he was right out the door of that TV show, man. And that that took, like, probably the opening weekend of Die Hard for Bruce Willis to bolt on Moonlighting. But but he became, obviously, a gigantic action star. And then he kind of inadvertently turned into a superhero type like Schwarzenegger or Schwarzenegger's characters, I should say, or Bond or characters like that. But in that movie, he wasn't. He was kind of an everyman and he was kind of reasonable. You know, he wasn't muscle bound. He had bad habits and uh, he looked like he probably didn't smell real good. And, (laughs) and like, like all of these things made him very relatable. And, uh, and I think that all kind of added to the success of the film. But everything else is really on the director. I mean, John McTiernan killed it. And it's always good to see director just firing on all cylinders. I mean, the movie is just, it's inventive the way the action scenes are shot. It's its tight, but it's, at the beginning, it's kind of mellow and luxurious. You think it's going to be kind of a slog. And then, boom, it kicks in into, like, the friggin' fifth gear right away. Um, it's... Uh, it's great. I love it. Again, all these movies, man, I could just go on and on. <laughs> what do you got at uh, number eight? Well, my number eight is uh, from 1986. Uh, it's Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters. Uh, I do think it's uh, the best comedy of the decade. I think pound for pound, as much as I love After Hours, uh, I will, uh, I'll give it to Anna and Her Sisters. It's just there's there's a lot going on there. There's like four different 
storylines. They're all clever. They're all acted by brilliant actors. And a uh, uh, special shout out to Michael Caine, who, you know, up to that point wasn't known as a totally as a comedian, you know, but man, he's so fucking funny in this movie, man. I, I'm amazed he didn't make more films with Woody Allen. But uh, it's just, you know, it's like everybody's great and it's like Allen at his best. It's a mature Woody Allen. It's not, uh, it's a Woody Allen who is not just trying to imitate other filmmakers like Fellini and Bergman to name two specifically that he likes to imitate. Um, and um, and again, it all just works really, really well. A fantastic cast. Um, again, like there's just so many memorable characters in it and and i mean like everybody's freaking great in the film like just go down the line of performances and it's just one awesome performance after another barbara hershey's fantastic michael kane like i said mia farrow's great diane weist did she get an oscar nomination for that i mean she's so freaking good i can't that. remember i know there's like a he had a long string there of almost anybody Almost every Woody Allen movie got at least a Best Supporting Actress nomination, but I don't know if that was it's one just, of them. It's it's crazy. I mean, Max von Sydow, I mean, I still quote that character. It's hilarious. I mean, he's great. And who'd think, like, Max von Sydow could be so funny? I mean, when has he ever been that funny? He is funny in, in Hannah and her sisters and tragic at the same time. And and that's what makes the movie great. To me, it, it, it like, approximates reality. As, as I would at least like to see it, it's got it's got optimism, it's got humor, but it's got pathos and and it's got tragedy and loss and all of these things, and uh, it all just kind of works. Uh, you know, it's all like this wonderful little tapestry. And again, like the cast of that movie is crazy. Like you run down the people who are in the film. You may see him for a second, but like Louis Black is in the film. Julie Louis-Dreyfus is in the film. Julie Kavner is in the film. The great J.T. Walsh is in the film. John Tortura is in the film. Uh, so it's just a, it's a treat from every direction. And as I've said before, if uh, you're not a fan of Woody Allen's archetype, uh, don't worry there's plenty of other people to look at in this film. Uh, so for me, Hannah and her sisters, uh, my probably the only comedy I have on the list here, Steve, my well, only comedy. Um, I, I have some comedies, uh, including my number eight, uh, as, as you mentioned recently, perhaps the most discussed movie in all of film-driven history is uh, Raising Arizona. So uh, <laughs> yes. I don't know that either one of us have a lot more to add to it, but I would just say that, it, you know, and when I'm listing my favorite movies of the 80s, for me, Raising Arizona's got to be on there, and uh, I put it in at number eight. So uh, we could probably just well, move along. But <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I mean, what do you love about Raising Arizona? What the heck? Might as well tell tell us what what it, what do you what do you love most about that film? Well, I mean, the easiest answer is it's just very funny. But uh, the other thing it I is. love about Raising Arizona, which is true, and the director Edgar Wright made a point once that he said Raising Arizona was a hugely significant movie for him because it was the first time that he saw a movie that he thought was really funny that was also cinematic. That uh, most of the other like comedies he's loved um, weren't very adventurous in how they were shot. You know, like not a lot of camera right. movement, 
Um, sure. You, you know, and not tons of jokes. Like a visual joke might be like a pratfall or something like that. You know, like certainly Woody Allen would have visual jokes, but yeah, not the way the Coen brothers would do it, that they just incorporate a lot more. Um, I mean, they're, they're very different in style, but almost like Scorsese doing a comedy, like you say. And I know After Hours came out uh, just shortly before uh, Raising Arizona, but right. yeah, so I just, it's kind of fun that it's the gonzo nature of it. Um, and it's, it's one of the first movies I saw too, as a kid that had that kind of absurdist point of view. Like I remember I did not see it in a theater. Uh, I saw it for the first time on VHS in my house. And I like me, you know, my parents got it from the video store and we watched it and I watched it with my mom and a beloved family friend. And both my mom and her friend were like, that movie's fucking weird and I don't get it. That's really odd. <laughs> Whereas I was just enchanted by it from the beginning. Like, you know, like. Right. Uh, and uh, in looking up, I think we, uh, I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but, you know, Roger Ebert was not a big fan of that movie because he thought the dialogue was just too stilted, too odd. But, mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's part of the charm. I mean, that's... Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That, well, you know, Roger Ebert didn't always get films. Uh, in, and uh, I'll talk about the film on my list that he notoriously didn't get at all. Well, but, it's uh, it's just funny to imagine. It's funny now, after all these years of both living with that specific film and the Coen brothers in general, it's just... I had a lot of fun imagining someone watching that for the first time and walking out of the theater and turning to your friends and being like, I don't know, the dialogue's kind of unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> like like that was the deal breaker for you. Right. Like it's and otherwise a documentary about babies, but then, you know, it's really the dialogue. I just didn't buy it. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's, uh, it, it's uh... the first five minutes of Raising Arizona, the kind of pre-credits that might be my pick for the best opening five minutes of almost any movie. Fantastic, right? I mean, yeah. it told, tells the entire pre-story. Like, it literally eliminates the need for the first act, and it jumps you right into the meat of what's going on. And that's brilliant. I mean, it's so inspired. I wish more movies do that, because most movies end up wasting ten minutes friggin' on, on exposition, essentially, or introducing their characters' inner lives, which usually are not all that friggin' interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Coen brothers have said that a lot of times they skip those scenes just because they also think those scenes suck in other movies. So they're like, right. why do we like, you know, why do I want to make a movie with this scene that I don't like when those scenes come up? I'm always like, ugh. and that, usually the argument for those scenes is like, well, the plot demands it. So they're kind of like, well, what if the plot did it? Like, let's. Yeah. Well, they don't skip those scenes. They just distill them into their funniest form. And what yeah. you have is that brilliant opening, right? I mean, in, in five minutes, they tell the entire backstory of your protagonists. And then, um, you know, you still don't know where you stand with these people. Uh, but uh, and, you know, they're weird. You may not like them for all you know. They're kind of annoying, to be honest with you. Right. I mean, both yeah. Nick Cage uh and Holly Hunter are kind of irritating a little bit. They're certainly not people you would probably hang out with, right? But uh, but as the movie goes on, you grow to love them based on the performances and the writing and just the way the movie's structured. Man, it's freaking great. I love Raising Arizona. 
So, all right. So what do we got next, Andre? I think we're up all to right. your number seven, right? I'm at number seven, Steve. And uh, my number seven is from 1981, and it is John Borman's Excalibur. Wow. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I reach deep for this one, Steve. And I have to tell you, I'm not uh, – it, it is not an odd choice for me. Uh, it is, uh, for me, one of those kind of uh, – formative films, a film that I watched that I was instantly going to myself, well, this is art, right? This is art with, like, fighting in it. Uh, this is what my, like, 12-year-old mind was telling me. And um, and it was. It was it was that. But it was a hell of a lot of art. Uh, I, I absolutely love Excalibur. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, but, I have not uh, seen that movie maybe since the 80s. Right, right. You, so you have seen it, but it is completely iconic. And I and I have to just kind of explain not just why the film in and of itself is good enough to be on a top list, but uh, why what it means, what the film kind of represents, puts it in the great film category. I mean, essentially, it is the single greatest cinematic retelling of the single greatest myth in the history of Great Britain, right? So the entire art form of cinema and television has never topped the achievement of John Borman's Excalibur in terms of telling the story of King Arthur, which is, again, it's the English formative myth, right? Uh, so that in itself is a huge accomplishment. But, but the movie itself is awesome. It is iconic it is beautifully shot it is full of awesome actors you know many of whom are making their film debuts uh like uh gabriel byrne makes his film debut in the film liam neeson makes his film debut in this film siren hines makes his film debut in this film it's crazy, and it's just full of awesome actors, uh, led by uh, Michael Williamson, who plays Merlin. Uh, and uh, what can I tell you? It's it's just it's just amazing. Uh, Nigel Terry, who plays uh, King Arthur, did not go on to have a successful film career, but is great in the film and plays the character essentially from teenage years to his death uh, as a man in his fifties and kind of manages to pull it off uh which is amazing and he's great uh and uh, the movie's just stunning visually it's um cleverly constructed it has a magical feel to it that's kind of hard to put your finger on it it feels like you're in this magical world and it and again it it world builds it creates a world of Camelot that we've never seen before. We've seen Camelot presented in stage plays and tons of other movies. But in this case, um, it's completely different from anything you'll ever see before that film, before 81. Um, and that in itself is an amazing achievement. So it's like a lot of stuff just comes together for this film. The performances, the concept, the approach, the art direction, the cinematography. The music by uh, Trevor Jones is friggin' amazing. It's, it is just gorgeous. And I can see why some of the rhythms of the film may not sit well with everybody. It jumps around time in seemingly haphazard manner. Uh, characters come and go, but it pays off. It's 
emotional. It tells the story of King Arthur very well and like in an interesting way. Uh, and um, I just can't recommend it enough. I, I friggin' love Excalibur. All right. That is a, yeah, I haven't checked that movie out in many years. So interesting to hear that you think it holds up. Yeah. Uh, It holds up great. So we might be ping-ponging back to you because, as we mentioned, my number seven was Raging Bull, a movie we just talked about because that was also on your list. Absolutely. uh, I'm going to go back. What do you got for six then, Andre? Oh, well, six. Now we have a... um, uh, a second appearance by Mr. David Mamet, this time as a writer only. Uh, and uh, that film is The Verdict the from verdict. 1982, I believe. Uh, that's right. A movie starring Paul Newman uh, in, in my view, his greatest performance. Number uh, one. Yeah. His greatest performance, absolutely, man, absolutely. It's I, it, it's an, it's an amazing, it's an amazing performance. He's, he's never been better before that. He's never been better since. Um, he's, he's just amazing in that movie. And uh, you know what can I tell you? The, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's just an absolute corker of a legal thriller detective film. Directed uh, brilliantly, of course, by the great Sidney Lumet, one of Hollywood's, uh, I think, greatest filmmakers that's kind of unsung to some extent. I mean, people obviously talk about a lot of the movies he made from The Pawn Broker to Twelve Angry Men to Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, but uh, The Verdict is definitely one of his best. And I absolutely love it, man. That movie is great, man. I mean, it is a classic Hollywood film. It's absolutely beautifully shot uh like i said david mamet wrote the screenplay it's brilliant it's a story of redemption it's a story about kind of a middle-aged guy that who finds his meaning of life in a late stage maybe a little too late but he finds it uh and i identify with that now but i identified it when i was a kid too i i thought it was awesome back then as well so um I, I, I don't know, man. I mean, there's just so much going on in the verdict. It's emotional. Uh, the The plot is interesting. It's got a lot of great performances. Uh, Charlotte Rampling, one of my favorite leading ladies, is in it. Jack Warden, a Hollywood classic, is great in the film. And James Mason, basically playing a villain, uh, is phenomenal in a late great performance just every single performance in it rings true the dialogue rings true what happens in the film is right on the money man it's 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 just so good it's one of those movies that because there's a lot of plot related stuff there's a lot of stuff you don't want to say about it but but uh but Paul Newman plays this middle-aged lawyer who ends up taking, you know, what he sees as an easy, gimme, you know, just payoff case and uh, ending up running with it. Uh, and that case ends up kind of redeeming him as a human being for a career of being basically an ambulance chaser. And uh, he's phenomenally good. Like I said, I can't, I can't even say enough about that performance. That may be one of the top acting performances of the decade for me. And I'll tell you something, I'm not a gigantic Paul Newman fan. I like I don't think everything Paul Newman did was amazing. Uh but he was a certainly a great actor and a great 
star to come out of that sort of method acting thing that uh Brando and James Dean came out of. He was part of that that whole thing, and uh, and arguably the biggest star to come out of that field, uh, with the exception of James Dean, who like didn't really get a chance to be a star. Really, he just died too early, and Brando, who didn't want to be a star. So Paul Newman, by default, the biggest star out of the friggin' Stanislavski method of the acting studio in New York, or the, their version of the Stanislavski method. But anyway. Verdict. Love it, Steve. My number six film. The yeah, Birds. I confess, I, I know all about that movie, but I have never seen it. It has slipped through uh, my viewing. I should revisit that, especially because I am a Sidney Lumet fan. Uh, I read his book, Making Movies, before I attended oh, film yes. school. It's a classic. Uh, and one of the things I think about Sidney Lumet in general, why he maybe doesn't get as well remembered is because just a classic example of a guy who just did the work like he uh he himself was not a super flashy personality no uh you know he didn't have like a wacky mustache or anything and uh, right. it's ac- and it's actually a, a, one of the points he tries to make in his great book is that he never believed there was such a thing like he always hated it when people would talk about a director's style because he just didn't believe in that. He thought your style should be whatever was appropriate for the material. Right. So right. he's like, he was... I, yeah, like I might have one style in this movie and then a totally – he thought it would be insane that you would be like, I make all my movies like this regardless of whether you're making a drama or a comedy. Right. Do, do you think he like was the believer in the auteur theory? Do you think he subscribed to the auteur theory? Like in, in terms of his own filmmaking philosophy, clearly he was all about uh, just being diversified, you know, making all kinds of different movies. And I agree with you completely in saying that, you know, the reason Sidney Lumet is not often mentioned is uh, in the top 10 American filmmakers of the late 20th century is because his he was all over the place. Every film he made was completely different from the film he made before, even though he definitely made a whole series of films about corruption in New York. You know, that was not a new topic for him. He he, he went back to that well several times uh, in terms of like police corruption, political corruption. But 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 so many of his films were were just all over the place. I mean, he did Murder on the Orient Express in what seventy two, I believe, and 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 you know, and and then his next film was like Dog Day Afternoon. It's just yeah. crazy how diverse he was in personal tastes and approaches, and and they're all completely different. You're right. I mean, his films like they they feel just authentic, just to themselves. You know, there's no like stamp on them. Yeah, just uh, just do the work for the material, and yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. If I had to guess, I would have to think he wouldn't be a big believer in the auteur theory because all his stories and experience with filmmaking is just not the normal. I mean, everybody says it's a collaborative process, but like, I don't know. In his book, there's not any stories about like, yes, I personally crafted everything about this movie. Like everything about it is. The movie came together because these people had to get the money and there was the star and just everything. All his stories about making movies are how it's like a puzzle piece that the director is an important part, but that 
certainly there's so many other moving pieces to come together to result in a finished movie that you can buy a ticket to. So, yeah, it's just he was a great filmmaker. And that's one of the things I always try to remind myself is that, like, sometimes when you think about people list, like, who are the best directors and an important thing to think about is, like, well, the best directors are the ones who make, like, really good movies. Like, it's not true, just true. about who has a great tracking shot or, you know, it's like, well, if the movie came out really good, you got to give the director credit for a lot of that. Absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, regardless what his views on the auteur theory was, like to me, he reminds me of a guy who comes out of a classic Hollywood era, like a guy like Michael Curtiz or uh, yeah. Howard Hawks, perhaps, you know, these guys made just a crazy variety of all kinds of movies. I mean, sometimes they would specialize in certain things that they were particularly good at. But in all cases, they were, they, you know, they made comedies, they made adventure films, they made women's dramas, they made soap operas, they made historical films. They were just all over the place. And that's that's how Sidney Lumet was to me. That's how he felt to me. And um, and usually those movies are good, man. I mean, it's hard to like, what's a bad Sidney Lumet film? I'm trying to think of like I mean, I wasn't that crazy about Q&A, I guess, towards the end of his career, but that's not a bad movie, though. You know what I'm saying? That's not a yeah. that, that, that may be one of his weaker films, but it's not a bad movie. And then you get into, like, weirder movies like The Anderson Tapes with Sean Connery. That was, like, I think 1970. Uh, and and that's a kind of a groovy hippie-type movie. It's not about the hippies, but it's just directed in a very psychedelic way. Uh, and that movie is um, is kind of a precursor to uh, the conversation. Uh, some people say that uh, Coppola kind of lifted some of the concepts from the Anderson tapes. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. Uh, no. But um, it's, it's really friggin' good. It's a heist movie. Uh, Sean Connery leads this band of... Uh, very, very diverse band of people to rob someplace and, uh, you know, betrayal ensues on all level. But uh, it uh, it features Martin Balsam, who plays uh, one of the few, like, very explicitly gay characters of the era. Uh, and he's a protagonist. He's not just a sideshow or somebody to sneer at. He's one of the main characters who you're rooting for. That was kind of brave um and christopher walken is in it he's, he looks like he's like 21 years old and he's got a big part and he's great and this was i may have been one of his first films uh so anderson tape if you get a chance check it out it's it's a cool movie diane cannon is in it too uh but uh yeah real good and again heist film completely different somewhat lighthearted but with a weirdly dark undertone to it uh works really well uh but uh what can you say Sidney Lament, great filmmaker and the verdict is one of his best so we're number six steve what's your number six so my number six is a it's a movie that probably most of the people listening to have seen but not a movie i think you and i have talked about a whole lot and that is the princess bride the um, you know, we mentioned Rob Reiner a little bit in our comedy things. It's another uh, Rob Reiner special. Um, the Princess Bride is both one of my favorite family films of all time, but I also say I think The Princess Bride has my favorite framing device of any movie I've ever seen. Just the whole <laughs> the grandpa of, reading the story. Yeah. Well, but then the fact that it's not just bookended. 
that, you know, occasionally you watch the kid get more involved and just how at first he doesn't want to hear it. And then occasionally he interrupts and cuts off. Sure. It comes back. Yeah. 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 It comes back. There's questions uh, that pop up. That was very clever and very cute. Uh, And uh, Peter Falk plays the great, the grandfather and, uh, yeah, it's really cool, man. And have you ever read uh, William Goldman's original book that, that's based on? I never have. I have friends who yeah, I heard people uh, love, love that book as much, if not more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it'd be a great read, I, honestly. And I think like like we have kids young enough that would kind of enjoy that uh, a, a reading of the Princess Bride. Um, but um, but William Goldman went on to write the screenplay as well, and it's brilliant and hilarious often and i don't know how much of it was improvised but uh william goldman was not unknown as a very funny writer uh and a funny guy from what i understand uh and uh, it just again it just works like why would why should princess bride work dude there's it just makes no sense right yeah to me that movie is i mean it's a fantastic script uh, which I don't think was even nominated. And it's also, I mean, everybody in that movie is really good. But to me, that is a great script. And then Rob Reiner's direction, um, you know, it, uh, to me, one of the most important things about directing is is timing. And uh, the timing in that movie is great. Like he has, he has the right sensibilities for just the right amount of comic timing, but then also, you know, the the fantastical, the magical elements. And there's other things that, you know, you have to roll the dice on and just nail, right? Like one of the things, um, Robin Wright in that movie. Yeah. I mean, is you needed somebody who was funny and charming, but also kind of stunningly gorgeous. Right. And uh, she, she checked all the boxes. Um, she did. And other She's stuff great. like, yeah, I mean, Carrie Elwes, it's one of those, you watch that movie, and if you do, like, if you had never seen any movies after that, and you watch that movie, you're like, well, that guy's going to be, like, a Tom Cruise-level star, right? And, yeah, that guy's going to be the biggest star in the world. Not. Instead, yeah, I mean, <laughs> he, had, he had a much quirkier career, you know, like, he, he, did. he became more of, like, a character actor, and he's he's still yeah. out doing stuff like it's not like I mean he he's but. he's not that old man I mean he's he's probably Keanu Reeves's age yeah. <laughs> so he could run around there and uh you know and and do some uh, taekwondo Who yeah knows? and there's there's maybe he will stuff I mean uh no one knew that Andre the Giant would have comedic timing you know I mean, no. it's, it's a little odd but it works that that role could have just been a complete dud and instead Andre is pretty charming in it yeah, absolutely. He's great. He's great. I mean, you said it. Everybody's great. And and you're right. Like, comedies require timing. But this is a weird movie because it's also kind of a fairy tale. And it's an adventure story. And it's a romance. And the tone is what becomes really important. The overall tone in it. And remember, it's a story within a story. It's magical. It's a fairy tale that Grandpa is tell- telling to his kid. Uh, so it's got... Uh, it's it's got a lot of hurdles. Uh, it's got a lot of ways it could have tripped up, and it didn't. It's just it's just perfectly charming on every level. And when it gets to the dramatic stuff, it works too, right? Like there's an element of danger to the film. There like is when an one element of the of characters yeah. dies, quote unquote. That's pretty friggin' freaky, man. I mean, that works dramatically. I was like, holy shit, they just killed off the main character. Or I mean, in some ways. 
especially knowing you know what we know now in the decades since the most surprising aspect of what worked is that the maybe the only character in the whole movie who is serious in all of his scenes is Christopher Guest Right, <laughs> like, but that's a and, whole Christopher Guest shtick, isn't it? He's always kind of serious. That's a but that's I mean, his comedic thing, right? You could argue that you know, like, say, Prince Humperdinck is the larger villain, <laughs> but Prince Humperdinck has comedic moments in this movie. He does, yeah. and he has a sense of humor too. Yeah, and sometimes you'll you'll look at other characters and, and like, Christopher Guest's character in this movie does not have a sense of humor. <laughs> he is deadly serious at all times. <laughs> Well, how funny could he be? He's got an extra finger. (laughs) Still, it's just, uh, you know, for the follow-up to uh, where those – for Christopher Guest and Rob Reiner, the next time they work together after Spinal Tap, (laughs) he plays this deadly serious villain character. (laughs) Yeah, but that that deadpan, though, Steve, that deadpan is a thing that Christopher Guest does very well. Well, he's always always dry. I mean, he doesn't mind – he's always, of course, dry, but, I mean, in this movie – if there's any element of menace in The Princess Bride, it is from Christopher Guest. It's him. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he is the villain for sure. Uh, and he does it He does it surprisingly well. Like I said, like the movie, you never, in spite the fact that it's a fairy tale within a story, within a fantasy film, within a comedy, it still manages to be very effective emotionally. And uh, and that's a great feat for like a second time director, right? I mean, it's just yeah. great. I, there's, I think that it, I think that's that there was a very high difficulty level. I would say compared to Spinal Tap, which even though they kind of discovered that whole aesthetic as they went along, uh, I still think that there was a lot more room for error in a movie like Spinal Tap. With this one, I think one wrong note, one wrong performance, uh, one wrong directorial choice, and the whole thing would have collapsed and it wouldn't have worked. And instead, it worked great. And it's a classic. And, you know, and it's on our list. What are you going to say? Yep. Yeah, my friend. Uh, well, we're off to a great start. But uh, unless we want this thing to go three hours, which we don't, uh, we're going to probably pause at this point, Steve. Unless there's something else you you were itching to mention about our first five choices of the best films of the 80s. No, I think this is a good stopping point. So we'll, we'll split this into a second part. And the second part, you can hear... Our uh, respective top five movies. Top uh, five. Some up. obvious, some not, maybe. But Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we will see you soon on the final countdown for the best films of the 1980s. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskett. See you next time. <laughs>